What it is, RJLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call at radiojustice.org. For something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you on the bus, train, plane, or simply at the water cooler, or yes, in Cubicle Nation. Today, we will discuss the life and death of Stanley Tookie Williams with his friends James McCarter, a.k.a. Spud, and Melvin Farmer, Prison Ministry Coordinator of River of Life Ministry, as they commemorate Stanley Williams this month of December, which marks his birthday, December 29, 1953, and his death, December 5, 2005. Also, we will have an audio clip of Mr. Williams from Bernard White of Wake Up Call. We have returning guest, Melvin Farmer, Prison Ministry Coordinator of River of Life Ministry. Mr. Farmer, welcome back to Conversation Peace. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, happy holidays to you, and uh, thank you for having me. And uh, oh, now always. my voice be heard. Yes, yes, most definitely. So we know that December marks the birth and death of Stanley Tookie Williams. We know he was born in Louisiana on December 29th, 1953. And on December 13th, 2005, he was executed by lethal injection in San Quentin prison by the state of California. We know he went from gang leader to an author to Nobel Peace Prize nominee. And of course, we can Google his name and find out a lot of different information about Mr. Williams, but Mr. Farmer, I want you to tell me, how do you know Stanley Williams? And tell me something about him that only you would know about him. Uh, well, I've seen uh, Mr. Williams go through the pages, uh, phases from the age of 12, uh, when he used to hang around in St. Andrews Park, him and his crew. And uh, they were... Uh, basically juvenile delinquents, but uh, always fair in what they did. They never uh, was asking nobody to do things during that time. Uh, that was in the early uh, 70s, 69, 70, 71, that I knew him at the age of 12. And then when I got to be about 15 and uh, joined the gang, which I had been in earlier, but started to really move on up in ranks, uh, took him and fell back because they were adults. So he went through another phase to where he, uh, a lot of people didn't know that he worked for uh, the Juvenile Justice Center for Juvenile Hall and ran two boys' homes in the middle of uh, 70, 73, 74, 75, 76, right up around in there. And actually, uh, the shotgun that was uh, used and found in this case he had owned back from them days from after he had got shot. Then I watched him progress through that to uh, drug addiction, which changed the course of his life. And from uh, drug addiction, uh, one thing a lot of people didn't know that after that, that Tookie might not have committed the murders, which ultimately had uh, 
led to his death, and that's something that a lot of people don't know about that I think should be known about. Right, and that's some of the things that you're going to um, talk about on Friday when you um, present new case evidence on Williams. Because when you said um, this case, I know, of course, I know when you're what you're talking about when you say this case, but there may be some listeners who don't know what the case is. Can you briefly tell us what the case is? Uh, this is the triple homicide, which might have... Uh led to him being convicted and uh, executed. Uh, Cookies always maintained and sought uh, evidence that should have been disclosed at the time of trial, but was suppressed and continued to be compressed and suppressed until uh, it ultimately led up to his death. And we feel that the motions he filed while fighting for his life uh, had merit and that uh, the prosecution uh, did a uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, we have uh, new information that really wasn't new because uh, his lawyers knew about it. I have an affidavit, so I'm legally uh, bound uh, within the perimeters of being a witness uh, in this case. Uh, I know about this case, and we feel that uh, if uh, the witnesses had perjured themselves uh, on the stand, and it took an innocent person's life, then surely the truth ought to be able to save some people's lives uh, that might be on death row, and we might can open the door to where a uh, discussion can be held about this death penalty on a national level. Right. So basically, we want to be able to um, connect his his death and, and his life to to help others, maybe possibly removing the, the death penalty in the state of California, if not nationally. But um, you, you were involved in some, in some legal standings. What, what, did, what did you do to present some, some paperwork to the courts? What, explain that to me. Well, when it was close to Tookie being executed, I, like everyone else, was listening uh, to what was going on to see what might happen in the case. And I heard the name of a witness who happened to be the star witness who happened to start the investigation into the uh, triple homicides after he had been involved and uh, was up under suspicion, suspicion and investigation of a murder. And I heard his name mentioned on the radio. So I called Earl LaFoy Hutchinson and say, uh, we have a problem uh, with this Stanley Cookie Williams case because I just heard a name where I know he couldn't have been the star witness because he had been a, a suspect in seven murders. And how could the courts know that? And uh, their word would be good. So I say, could you get in contact with Barbara Becknell and his defense team, which they did. Uh, I told him that I knew about a case shell that was found uh, at the scene of the crime where nobody knew about it, and they sent him down uh, to fill out an affidavit, which went to the California Supreme Court and uh, was denied. So that's how I got involved in it, because uh, I just felt that it was impossible for this witness word to be good with his involvement uh, as a paid informer prior to and with his history uh, 
prior to that. I just couldn't understand it, and I figured there had to be some type of cover-up, which there actually was. Right, the dirty business handling by law enforcement, the district attorney, and any informants. The courts had said that this witness was not up under uh, investigation for a murder, but was a uh, witness to a murder, which changed the landscape for what Tookie was filing for because of the fact that as him being classified as a witness, that gave him the grounds to suppress that evidence because he wasn't being investigated. So it's very crucial that we be able to uh, point out and with clarity and conviction and stand on our words that that statement wasn't true because the main witness had been up on the suspect uh, an investigation for a homicide that occurred February uh, the 9th, where actually they didn't know when the murder occurred, which makes it ironic that the uh, lead investigator for the homicide said that uh, the witness had an alibi for a murder that did not even have a time of death. So it was impossible for the witness to have had an alibi when the murder happened because nobody knows when the murder happened. The man uh, had been stuffed in the trunk, shot in the head, a bag put over his head, and they had told the car in for sitting there. And three days later, they smelled the body odor, so they declared the death uh, February the 12th, even though the car was found on the 9th. So that was false testimony. Then they said that this witness... Uh, was only a witness in that, but if that's the case, why did they show me a map that said he was up under investigation not only for that murder, but six more murders? So we can infer he wasn't a witness in all the other cases, but because of the differences in the wording and terming of witness as opposed to investigation, that allowed the prosecution to uh, suppress the evidence to where the courts never heard the backgrounds of none of the witnesses. Uh, and we also have a pattern of leniency prior to these incidents happening in the triple homicide, but also afterwards to where uh, our basic foundation and our basic question is, should the jury have knew about the background of the witnesses that were involved? That is the crux of this matter about Stanley Tookie Williams because the jury did not know that he was an FBI informant. They denied it. The jury did not know that he was up under investigations for murder. The jury did not know that he the one, after he was up under investigation for murder, he's the one that said he know about a murder that took he might have been involved in. So uh, we want truth and a, a, a definitive answer to this. We feel that... Uh, the statements by the prosecution were deliberate and it was a deliberate lie. But more importantly, once my affidavit was filed, the court should immediately file the stay of execution and find out what I had to say as the public is fit to find out now with uh, everything that went on in that case. And then they should have made an opinion, was the uh, witness list reliable? and uh, uh, were they given uh, leniency and a uh, special treatment for their testimony in return for uh, testifying against Stanley Tookie Williams. Now, Mr. Farmer, with 
all of this information, and 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 and, and thank you for sending me um, the document because um, Radio Justice listeners, you too can look at this document. I I saw that it was available online um, for you to download and to read the motion for post judgment discovery under Penal Code 1054.9. In there, there's 88 pages of in this document. And it sounds like the person that you're speaking of, that is a is it that that all evidence is pointing that this is that that these three murders may have been committed by him instead. Is that what you're saying? Or are you just saying we know that it that based on the evidence that it could not be Stanley Williams, but are you also saying that it could possibly be this other person? Well, let's go by the transcripts which you read, and uh, they said during the initial interview that the uh, suspect, the witness, had given him information that wasn't privileged to nobody unless she was the killer at the beginning of the trial. And after uh, they confronted him with that, they turned. he turned around and said, oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, like what I've seen on the news and this and that. And it's very interesting that we uh, really look at this and investigate this homicide because they had uh, suppressed the evidence to where uh, they couldn't even tell where the body was located at. The jury didn't know that, and it only was a one-sentence report on this murder. But more importantly, if the jury didn't know, the prosecution knew, and uh, Tookie's uh, defense didn't know, why is it I know where the body was found? I know what's missing off the body. It's still a cold case. So when Tookie filed his post-conviction uh, discovery motion, it should have been granted because I had newly discovered evidence, which I didn't even know existed until I did some investigating. And it's, and it's true. He was upon investigation. The investigation was dropped. And, uh, they knew that uh, he could have possibly been him because that's what they said in there. Also, uh, this guy that was uh, uh, murdered, the victim, was uh, his crime partner in a scheme to where they were uh, doing insurance fraud, but the FBI had hired uh, James Garrett to be an informant to uh, give testimony on the uh, crooked lawyer, but instead James Garrett uh, went and uh, turned around and uh, extorted the uh, the lawyer and got caught for that. And once again, he uh, 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 special treatment and only got a probation or something like that. So you can infer from what they said that he was the suspect in not only that murder but six other murders that was suppressed. Right. right. And and on, on on Friday for for the for the live uh, discussion, the the one of the re, end results that you want from this is for to of course to to have people to see your friend Stanley Williams through the eyes of you and his other friends, but also for to hold people accountable for, for di- dirty business handling. And I know that's a long road of bringing law enforcement and the district attorney and 
anybody else involved in it to to be held accountable. But tell me, what are some of the other suppressed evidence that you want to bring to light that's from the motion for post-judgment discovery? I know you were talking about the body uh, and and the the, uh, the one of the informants his his relationship um, with with that person. I, I know I read in the in the motion that there was um, a possibility a second shooter was was involved. Do you have anything to add to add to that? Yes. Well, it was numerous. You had uh, ineffective assistance of counsel that he filed up under. And remember, any one of these that can be proven could overturn a conviction. He had to have ineffective okay. assistance of counsel if I can sit up here and not uh, be of counsel and can figure this out. So that tell you there was they made a tragic error in not uh, calling uh, and finding out and investigating more and using my affidavit to give to the uh, governor who would have went to clemency or using it because it was a 43 decision. Also, we had the uh, prosecutorial uh, misconduct that he claimed. Uh, we can uh, address that because we know that up under Brady versus Maryland, which is the statute that he filed up under, which you described earlier, if you can prove that uh, these murders occurred and he was up under investigation, but law enforcement and the prosecution denied it up under Brady versus Maryland. That's automatic dismissal of the three murders. And that's very important here because we can prove that if I knew about the murders, there's still an open case. That means the prosecution should have known. So that's a slam duck. We had the misuse of jailhouse informants to where they retracted their statements later on uh, to where they said that they lied and the police helped them. And we also have uh, the misuse of government informants uh, to where as we know that these people were getting uh, uh, personal uh, favors done to them. Like, for instance, uh, the witness wife was allowed and paid by the DA where she was given money to continue uh, her living expenses and to pay for their home and everything because of her testimony even though it was suppressed that she had already said there's nothing wrong with lying on court for money that was suppressed. So a lot of information uh, will be coming out and a lot might not be coming out because of uh, the statute of limitations on certain situations to where I can look to it, to where uh, these other people that were back there during the day would have to uh, consult with an attorney to see what, what their legal standing is in there. But, uh, there's, on the overall, there should be compelling evidence that uh, maybe an innocent man uh, uh, was convicted and that we stand by our words for what we stand for, that uh, uh, a travesty of justice occurred and maybe this could save somebody else's life. Right, right, most definitely, to try to save somebody else's life. You are listening to Conversation Piece, and we have returning guest Melvin Farmer, with us today. Melvin, you have any closing words? Uh, no, just tune in to the show from 8 to 10, and uh, you be the uh, jury and decide on uh, what's Tookie right in his uh, motion that this evidence should have been heard by the jury and would it have made a difference. And he had a whole truth on the other side uh, 
uh, evidence that was suppressed that uh, may have been able to exonerate a man. I'd like to thank you uh, for having me on the show. And uh, like once again, I hope you guys tune in and share because uh, this could be somebody else's life up here later on down the line. And, uh, you know, we seek justice and we want equality, but we have to stand up for it. Okay. Well, thank you for the work that you do um, in, in prison ministry and, and on the streets. Most definitely um, need to have more brothers out there doing that type of work. Once again, you're listening to Conversation Peace. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and we had Melvin Farmer and James McCarter on Friends of Stanley Tukey Williams. Don't forget to join Mr. Melvin Farmer and others in a live discussion titled It's Been More Than Ten Since They Did Him In, Stanley Williams Through the Eyes of Friends, as new evidence will be presented on Stanley Williams. And you will find this on Friday, December 29th from 8 to 10 p.m. on facebook.com forward slash melvin.farmer.737. Thank you, Mr. Farmer. Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Peace with guests and friends of Stanley Tookie Williams, James McCarter. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate you, and thanks a lot. Oh, you're you're very welcome. Now, tell me this: How do you know Stanley Williams? Oh, me and Stanley grew up together. I've known Stanley since 1970, 69, 70. And uh, the neighborhood which in which we grew up in, um, on the uh, west side of Los Angeles, which was the uh, 100s, 90s, 80s, 70s, 
uh, West off of Western Avenue. Uh, we grew, all grew up together and we participated in, in some activities together, but we also went to the same schools and stuff like that. Okay. Now, uh, were you involved in, in gang activity also, or are you just one of the neighborhood guys or what, what, what was your activity? Uh, what were you doing during that time? What was I doing in that time? <laughs> yeah, what exactly. were you doing yeah, during exactly. that time? <laughs> right. Well, I think, you know, as, as, as it was in, in the inner city at that time, it was a lot of gang activities and I was uh, involved in the gang activities and it was, uh, uh, you know, the Crips and it was a lot of gang activities going on. It was different, you know, sets, but it wasn't like it is today. It was all, we were all together, you know, mm-hmm. and it was a, a, a participation of the, which, which we were called the West Side Crips. Okay. And let's, let's just put it out there, which was, you know, mainly considered of the West Side, which was Western Avenue, Normandy, Florence, uh, all the way back up into the hundreds. So that was normally known as the West Side, okay? And it okay. was the West Side Crips. And then it went into the uh, OGs, which was uh, uh, underground, you know, really still for underground, OG Crips still for underground. So uh, we were all participating in, in, in the gang activities. And that was the environment in which we grew up in. You know, it just wasn't something that, you know, we decided to just, like, start. It was just really friends hanging out with friends, you know, and to protect one another and to keep one another safe. You know, a lot of people have a misconception of the Crips, you know, that we were a vicious, notorious gang. And, you know, that just wasn't what it started from. It started from based on, you know, friends and hanging out with each Mm -hmm. other, you know, and protecting one another and protecting, you know, each other's neighborhood, you know, make sure that we're safe. You know, a lot of people don't understand that gang started a long time ago. There was, before the Crips, there was the businessmen, there was the sloths and asses, you know. So it wasn't like, you know, it was all, we don't start this really vicious gang or something like that. It didn't happen like that. It happened by a group of kids hanging out, trying to protect one another and just being there for each other, if you understand what I'm saying. Right, yes, yes. It started off as as a, as an innocent thing of just boys in the neighborhood hanging out right now when and how did it turn to something different well you know to be honest with you you know it was a uh, I think when it started getting headlines in the newspaper you know there was the uh, uh, Robert Ballou killing at the Hollywood Palladium over a leather coat okay uh, that started getting headlines and what it did was it gave negative energy to uh, 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 a, a, a gang of guys that got together because of the neighborhood. So what happens is when when stuff like that happens and it hit national news, you know, it creates a, 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 a scenario as these guys are, are bad, they're criminals, they're gangs, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, and that's when this stuff really started, you know, coming on when, when, when it happened was one of the guy got jumped for a leather coat and he got killed. And so it started getting national attention. And that's a lot of times when when the media steps in and it starts giving the Crips a bad name and so on and so on. And then that's when, you know, the persona of, oh, my God, they're a bad, you know, a bad gang. You know, I can remember at the Watch Stack, you know, that we were asked by one of the speakers, one of the singers, you know what I mean, to contain the crowd. You know, you, you understand what I mean? So that right. was that, uh, 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 yeah. So 
So it wasn't all bad. And then, like, at the concerts, at the forum or something, you know, it was a group of us, 50 or so. We'd walk around, you know, at the halftime or at the show or whatnot. And a lot of people were, you know, they were intimidated. They were scared because it was a group of guys, a group of young black African-American guys that, you know, had had come and started getting a reputation because of the media. You know what I mean? Like, we were bad guys. So that's a lot of where it came from. You know, Chris wasn't started as a as a bad game, you know, jumping people or beating people up or nothing like that. It was really created a lot by the media, which was given, you know, a lot of, uh, um, you know, uh, un, which was uh, unprecedented type of media that wasn't all, that was all negative, you know. So when everybody seen somebody or us as a group of guys, I can remember walking through Sportsman Park and it was maybe, you know, 50 or 60 guys, you know, and, and, and here come the police and, you know, they surrounded us and everybody laid down and all of this, but nobody had anything on them. It wasn't nothing wrong. We were all going to the park to hang out, you know, and in and, and, and the neighborhood. So this is the kind of stuff that really created a bad reputation. Now, don't get me wrong. There was some bad stuff that was going on, you know what I mean, as a gang, you know, but most of it was like, you know, trying to protect your neighborhood, trying to protect your brother. Something happened to one of us, then we all came to fight or we all came to protect that one brother. And that's just what happens, you know, in that type of environment in in, in the communities and in the neighborhoods of where we grew up at. Okay. Well, no, no, I do. I do understand. I do understand what, 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 what you're saying. And I wanted to, you know, you know, because we're, you know, we want to, see what your perspective was in gang activity on the onset. And then, of course, all of us know where it is now, and we know that it had taken a, a, a horrible turn to be something to be something different, where either you started to live up to what the media, was describing because we know that the media is about um, sensationalizing, you know, whatever it is, to 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 hype it up to to make it um, inviting to stay tuned to, um, but you you know the the gang activity started to meet what the media was describing in in its activity, but. Um, but you know, but I I always like like you know like for people to hear that you know that that was not the initial intent of of a gang um, in in Los Angeles during that time. And then of course I guess as as there was maybe not that much organization to it. I don't know what 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 really made it start to become something where you know. Violent, you know, gun violence got involved in and uh, robberies and and the, those type of things. What? How did how did it turn from we're just protecting our neighborhood to doing something totally opposite? If you can answer that question, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is this is my belief. This is my opinion, and this is what I seen. This is what my experience. Okay. And, yeah. and that's all I can give. You know, I know that, you know, once that, you know, we were we were formulated, you know, and we were given that name and then it was given. Mm-hmm. And what happened was other neighborhoods started creating their gangs, believing that, 
okay, that 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 the Crips were going to do something to them, or the Crips were going to, you know, take over their their neighborhood, or the Crips was going to come in there. And so other gangs started formulating. You, you understand? Okay. Right. As, so there became as, like right, a trust right. war. Right, like as of Inglewood family, okay, or as okay. of uh, the Brims, as of okay. right, other gangs started forming because it was based on what they had heard from the media about the Crips, okay? Okay, So that okay. would be like, yeah, that, uh-huh. So what happened was, you know, the media, after like, like you said, they sensationalized stuff, you know what I mean? So other neighborhoods was like, okay, well, you know, we, we heard about the Crips, and we don't want the Crips coming over here, and we don't want them messing with us, and we you know, so other other neighborhoods started forming their own group of people that they had grew up with, their friends, and they started forming their own gang. You know, right, and so right. after, yeah, mm-hmm, and that's how that became, you know, so after uh, uh, they started forming their gangs, you know, to defend themselves or, or felt threatened by, you know, the Crips or whatever. So then things escal- escalated, okay? Mm-hmm, so now, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, you know, you better not come over here. The Crips better not come over here. Are we going to get the Crips or the Crips are coming for us? You know, and you start hearing different stuff by different other neighborhoods. And that's right. what created, right, you you understand what I'm saying? And that's yeah. what created the conflict between uh, a lot of African-American blacks in that neighborhood, in that environment, in the inner city. Okay, now they felt fear of the Crips, so now they had to fulfill, like they had to protect themselves, so they started, you know, making their own gangs or coming up with their own neighborhoods. And you you understand what I'm saying? So oh, yeah, yeah. Happened, and it, yeah, and as that happened, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. You you felt so the Crips now now all of a sudden we feel threatened. You know what I mean? What do you mean you, right. you know you got a gang over here and it, you know so now we felt threatened. So now we felt like we had to protect ourselves. You know you understand what I'm saying? That's what created a lot of the gang violence and the gang wars. That right there, it was nothing more, nothing less than other neighborhoods trying to protect themselves from what they had heard about the Crips. Okay, when 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 they formulated, you know, they felt threatened, and when they formulated, we felt like they were a threat to us. You you, you understand what? I'm- mm-hmm. Right. And then things just escalate, and things starts to blow up. Right. Then now it's to the point where you know it is it is, it, and you know, and I haven't been in in there for a while. I haven't been there in California, but but what I know because I talk to a lot of friends of mine, you mm-hmm. know, that are still there, it's still escalating and it's gotten out of way out of control. You know what I mean? Because now you even have Crips on Crips, you know, Crips fighting Crips. So it wasn't like that when we were growing up. We had, you know, we had car blocks to go anywhere we wanted to in the city mm-hmm. of Los Angeles. Now I hear you can't, you know, people can't go but a five block radius now. You know, if you go in the wrong neighborhood, you know, and, and, and it's just, that's what I hear. I don't know I'm not there. But what I do right. know is, is when I was there, how it was. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's where, and mm-hmm. that's, what, that's what I believe in, and I, that's how it was all created. You know, and everybody was trying to protect their turf. Everybody was trying to protect their neighborhood. You know, and everything, all the gangs start popping up over here, and they felt threatened to the gang down here. The Crips felt threatened to the Bloods. The Bloods felt threatened to the Crips. So that's how it became a war zone now in in our in our pre-interview um you had told me that you were in san quentin prison so we know before you know as as a young man you knew stanley williams and then later um you were doing time um from 1980 to you said june 1986 now, during that time when you were in San Quentin, 
and Stanley Williams was in there also. Tell me something about Stanley Williams that you think people need to know about him that maybe only you know. Okay, absolutely. No problem. I, um, me, me and Stanley, as I arose, as I arrived at San Quentin, and it was late at night because I had left another institution and I was transferred over to San Quentin. And as time went on and I was there for maybe a couple of days, I uh, found out that uh, Stanley was on the tier above me. He was on the third tier. There was other inmates there because it was death row. And it was other inmates there that I was pretty close with that I knew out before we had went to uh, prison. And Stanley was one of them. And um, we had proceeded to talk, you know, about certain things uh, that was going on, not only on his case, but also on my case. And because he asked me, he said, well, what, what are you doing here, bro? You know what I mean? How you get here? And I went to on to uh, explain to him what had happened and everything. So, you know, he was he found a, vest, a vested interest in wanting to know what, what I was doing there. It wasn't more about what he was doing there or what had happened in his case. He was more interested in what I was doing there, you know. And that right. showed me right there. Right. See, that right there showed me that he really cared. He was he was concerned. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't about him. It was about what was I doing there. You know what I mean? Yo, what, what happened? What, why are you here? You know, so we went on to talk. But let me tell you something about, about Stanley, okay, that a lot of people didn't know. You know, okay. not, only was he, not only was he intelligent, right, but he had a heart of gold, okay? He would give you the shirt off his back, okay, if you needed it. Uh, and I mean that. From, with all sincerity, okay? Whatever he had, you had. You didn't have to worry about not going out without cigarettes and, and Stanley didn't even smoke. I mean, he didn't, you know, but he would make sure that I had cigarettes. He would make sure that I had soap. He would make sure that I had whatever I needed when I first arrived, okay? Regardless of what he, if he didn't even have it, he would talk to some other inmates there and make sure that people got what they needed to get, all right? Stanley was, you know, he wasn't a real big talker, okay? He was really mm-hmm. a, a, a personal, interpersonal self. He kept to himself. He didn't talk a lot, but when he did, you know what I mean? Like, he didn't waste any energy. What he said was his words made a lot of sense, and they hit home, okay? But a lot of people didn't know that. In other words, you know, Stanley was not this big monster that people created him out to be. He wasn't even close to that. They didn't understand that. He was a caring, concerned individual, you know, how can you get an individual that they locked up or that they killed and then, you know, electrocuted and killed that, that, that wrote books about kids and how to stay out of gangs? He was a caring, concerned individual human being that had a lot of heart, okay? And I'm telling you this because I got a chance not only to, to, to elaborate with him but know him before and I got a chance to even know him later. You know, when we're all young, we don't know a lot. We make mistakes. Yes, we do. We're human. But as we get older, you know, we start to realize, you know what I mean, some of the mistakes that we made, and we try to make amends for them things. You know, and Tookie was trying, Stanley was just trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, even though he knew that what he was in there for wasn't totally correct. It wasn't totally honest. He knew that. He knew it. You know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. what he did know was some of the things that he had been accused of as in the past, which he tried to make, you know, amends for and try to do right. But that was not, listen, Stanley, Stanley Tookie Williams was a good hearted person. 
human being, and I mean, and soft too. He wasn't hard, like you know, scary or nothing. I mean, he, he was, he was a, you know, he had, he had a sense of humor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But most of all, he had a heart that was big as gold. You hear me? Right, right. Now, on, listen. Uh huh. Go ahead. Let me explain one thing. Any, any time okay. you're on death row, and your concerns are more about other people trying to help them to get out, or trying to help them to get their life together, instead of trying to, you know, be more concerned about your own self. That's mm-hmm. that's a person with a giving. That's a person with a giving heart. Yeah, who's who's thinking outside of themselves? Yeah, and outside of themselves and and, and their 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 circumstance to even the point where you had said that when it was time for you to leave San Quentin, he gave you a piece of advice. And what was that advice? Okay, let me let me tell you how he came to give me that piece of advice. Because he'd been incarcerated, he was really studying the law. He did a lot of studying with the law. And I had presented him with my uh, paperwork for my crime that I was committed for. And he looked at it, and he came back to me, and he said, this is not right. Something's not right with this one. He said, listen, I'm going to write you a Haley's Rippers course to the courts. He said, I'm going to mm-hmm. file a petition for you because this is not right. Okay? So I said, all right. He said, listen. He said, uh, get the stamps. I'll write it all out. Don't worry about it. And to my unbeknownst to me, it came back maybe eight, nine months later. And what happened was, he was the first person I told. I said, man, my Haley's Rips Corp came back, and they told me that I was going to be released. Okay? Wow. He said that, they, yep, I was sentenced. No, no, okay, so you was going to be, court. so you was going to, well, what, what, what were you originally sentenced for? I didn't have, I was sentenced. How much to, time? To, 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 oh, 5 to 15. Okay. 5 to 15, okay? But when I had got into an incident in prison, okay, I didn't have mm-hmm. a date. Okay, so they took my date when I got in trouble. They took my date because I got into an uh, incident. They took my date, so I didn't have a date. What do you I mean didn't you didn't have a date? Out. They okay. took my they took my date. They took because I was sentenced from five anywhere. I could have been doing anywhere between five to fifteen years. And what happened was when I got in trouble in in the institution, they took my parole date, which mm-hmm. wasn't known anyway, right? But they took that. So I didn't have a date, so I didn't know when I was getting out because they were trying to convict me of another crime when I was in prison. So I didn't have a date. So when Tookie wrote me to Haley's Rippers course and it came back, it came back that I was sentenced wrong and I had done more time than I was supposed to. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was, yeah, I, I was doing more time than I was supposed to. So what happened was they uh, they immediately came to me and told me that I was going home it was June the 7th, 1986, when I got it in. An officer, one of the guards, prison guards, came to me and told me, he said, they've been at your paperwork. They were supposed to been release you. They didn't want to release you because they wanted you to get into some more trouble, okay? This was what okay. I was told by a prison guard, mm-hmm. okay? Right. So yeah. St- Stanley, Stanley Williams told me, he said, don't worry, it's going to, they got to let you out. So they called me to the board. They called me to the board. I went to the board. They said, if you've been released, you got a Haley's Rippers Corpse. The judge has cut your sentence. You are being released. You'll be going home June the 10th. I talked to Stanley. Stanley told me, say, listen, I don't want anything from you. He said, I only want one thing from you, Spud. He said, now stay out of here. Don't ever come back. He said, that's all I want from you. And I said, man, whatever I can do for you, man. I gave him my number to get in touch with me when I got out. 
He said, man, listen, I don't want nothing else from you. Just don't ever come back here. And to this day, 2017, Christmas, December the 25th, <laughs> I have not been back, touched another jail. And that was my promise or my word to him for getting me out because I wouldn't have been out. I don't even know if I would have ever got out. I don't know if I would have got out. I don't know if I would have been right. alive or not if he wouldn't have done that for me. But that was the only thing he asked me to do was to never come back. And for somebody never to, come back. to say that, yeah, right. say that to somebody that was leaving, you know, because a lot of times men love company. They don't want nobody to see you. You don't want nobody to get, they don't want nobody to leave. Plus they know they're not leaving. A lot of times, right. you know, they know they're not never leaving. They don't want you to leave either, you know. Right. But Tookie wasn't like that. Tookie was like, listen, he got me out. He rolled me in Haley's Ripper's Court. He didn't have to do that. And he told me, don't ever come back. That was his words. I don't want nothing from you, but just not to ever come back. That was his last words to me. Wow. And, of course, we we can't bring his life back, but... We're here talking about Stanley Williams through the eyes of friends. And as what has been said earlier, that, you know, later this week, uh, Radio Justice family, there will be a live discussion titled, It's Been More Than Ten Since They Did Him In. Stanley Williams through the eyes of friends. You are listening to Conversation Peace with guests and friends of Stanley Tookie Williams, Melvin Farmer, and James McCarter. Collect call from Ness. Where are you? Yo, shit is crazy, boo. Yo, I miss you. Yo, once. Can you put some money in my commissary? Lord Kenny been smoking Lucy since he was 12. Now he's 25, locked up with a L. They call him Triple K. Cause he killed three niggas. Another ghetto child got turned into a killer. His pops was a Vietnam veteran on heroin. Used like a pawn by these white North Americans. Mama couldn't handle the stress and went crazy. Grandmama had to raise the baby, just a young boy, born to a life of poverty. Hustling, robbery, whatever brung the paper home. Carried the chrome like a blind man, hold a cane, tattoos all over his chest so you can know his name. But y'all know how the game goes. D's kicked in the front door and guess who they came for? A young nigga headed for the pen, could have been, should have been, never see the hood again. Behind enemy lines, my niggas are cellmates. Most of the youth never escape the jail fate. Super maximum camps will advance their game plan to keep us in the hands of the man locked up behind enemy lines. My niggas are cellmates. Most of the youth never escape the jail fate. Super maximum camps will advance their game plan to keep us in the hands of the man locked up. You're listening to Conversation Piece. I'm Angela Burson, your host. And right now we're talking to James McCarter, also known as Spud. Now, Mr. Um, McCarter, I just, just listening to, 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 to your own story within the criminal um, justice system, I think I already know the answer to, to this question, but I'm going to ask it. I'm going to pose it anyway. So in regards to Stanley Williams, sentencing, um, conviction, and ultimately the execution. Do you believe there was bad business handling by the law enforcement, the district attorney, informants, et cetera, in, in regards to his case? Like I said, I think I already know the answer to that because of what happened with you. But in, in regards to Stanley Williams, do you think that there was dirty business handling with, with his case? 
Yes, yeah, yes, I do. Absolutely, there's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind, or in a lot of other people that knew Stanley, that there was some incorrupt, very incorrupt law enforcement, very incorrupt uh, individuals involved in uh, the conviction of Stanley. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a few people. One is Melvin Palmer that will be enlightening a lot of people on exactly the ins and outs to the case. Uh, yeah. You know, the the, the shotgun, uh, other people that was involved in it. It was just a lot, uh, Ms. Birdsong, that was very, that never came to light. And the people didn't want it to come to light. But, yeah, it was a lot of shady business when it came to Stanley's whole conviction. And, and and not only that, but also his execution. Yes, it was. And and I can't I can't say too much about it. I'm gonna let Melvin uh give you more insight because he had more detailed information on it and I had a little and I mm-hmm. have I was prejudiced to enough. Um but I'll tell you this, it was it was a uh, uh it was so much of a cover up. It was so much of a uh the uh, injustice on this mm-hmm. case that it wasn't it wasn't even funny it, it just wasn't you know and right. and a lot of that stuff will come in light you know how they say you know whatever you do in the dark it comes to light it it, it will be exposed and right. being exposed now and some of yeah. it, some of it was then they just kept covering it up okay but yeah right. and and you know that definitely it was a lot of injustice uh, based on his his situation and his case absolutely. Yeah, right. And, and it's no nobody can tell me anything different. I know that for a fact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, if you if you don't mind me asking you, you so you you got released from um, San Quentin in June 1986, and you obviously has have followed the words of of um, your friend Stanley Williams to stay out of trouble. Don't come back here. What what did you do after you left? Where where did you go? Well, after I left, I uh, I got on parole. I got on parole, and you know what? I, <laughs> listen, my my mom, my mother, and God bless her soul, and she's still here. But my mom put me on a one way plane ticket <laughs> back here to, <laughs> to my sister. <laughs> I'm being honest. Okay? okay, right. She told me. She said she's seen. She and I always say I say my mom gave me life twice, you know, and and Stanley. But she put me on one ticket back in Pennsylvania to my sisters, and she said either you gonna wind up dead or you gonna wind up doing life in prison, and you're not never gonna get out of the chance that you're headed. So I was able to get off parole in uh, '87, '88. Okay. And I came, yeah, I came back here to Pennsylvania with uh, with my sister and my brother and my brother-in-law. And my nieces and nephews, some of them were here. And uh, I continued to, uh, you know, I didn't straighten out, straighten out just right on, on time. It just didn't happen instantly. It happened over a period of time where yeah. I uh, went to school and started doing something different in my life. I became a truck driver. I drive a truck. I've been driving over 20 years now. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I continue. I, I believe in the Lord. I go to church. Uh, I changed my life around, you know what I mean, and I help people, you know what I mean, because a lot of times, a lot of people in that environment that grew up, that we grew up in, it was really drug infested, and a lot of crimes and a lot of stuff happened behind people on drugs, okay? 
uh, not right. just the, 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 you know, yeah, it's a lot of that would come from a lot of people that are locked up, a lot of people that, you know, get in a lot of trouble. It, it, it's not because of what they do or who they are. It's because of the influence that they're up under. You, you understand what I mean? So I help in that area, in this in this community right now, as, you know, as people get, getting people help and, and helping people. I go to the prisons. I carry the message, you know, and I talk to a lot of people in that area. And, and so that's where I came from, and that's what I'm doing now. Well, praise God for a turnaround. Most definitely. Yes, God has been good to me. Yes, he has. Yes. I always say I live the life of this self-destruction and chaos, and I also live a life of God's blessings today. Okay, Mr. McCarter, thank you so much for for joining me. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing your story. Uh, j- just just a small part of it, um, but the part where where we can see Stanley Williams through your eyes and, and how integral he was and you getting back on track. So obviously God used him in your life so that you can uh, do what you're doing now and reaching back to to others. So I just want to thank you for 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 giving me your time on on conversation piece today. You have any last words or anything that you would like to say? I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to give you my experience and strength and hope on this situation, not only in the past but also in the present. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing to try to get to the truth of the matter of Stanley and his legacy lives on. And I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity. And you're very welcome, sir. I am Angela Birdsong, your host. You are listening to Conversation Piece. Next is an audio clip of Stanley Williams provided and recorded by Bernard White of Wake Up Call. Tukey Williams, we are speaking to you uh, from death row. What is your state of mind this morning as you are facing, awaiting the decision in your clemency petition? Well, I feel good. And uh, my redemption shines. I got up this morning. I cleansed myself. I prayed. I exercised. And uh, now I'm talking to you. Well, prior to talking to you, I was talking to my mother. Of course, she's quite encouraging, spiritual, and so am I. And my lack of fear for this barbaric methodology of death, I... Rely upon my faith. It has nothing to do with machismo, with manhood, or with some pseudo former gang street code. This is pure faith and predicated on my redemption. So, therefore, I just stand strong and continue to tell you, your audience, and the world that I am innocent and yes I've uh, been a wretched person but I've redeemed myself and 
I say to you and all those who can listen and will listen that redemption is tailor-made for the wretched. And that's what I used to be. So I can answer one more before I go. How would you like the world to imagine your legacy, one that we all hope does not begin tomorrow but begins in many years from today? I appreciate you making that statement. But uh, I've been asked uh, the same query not too long ago. And I said, just one word. Just one word uh, can sum it up in a new key, in a new key. Uh, in a nutshell, and that is redemption. I can say it no better than that. That's what I'd like the world to remember me. That's what I would like my uh, legacy to be remembered as, a redemptive transition, something that I believe is not uh, exclusive just for the so-called sanctimonious, the elitist. And it doesn't, it's not predicated on color or race, social stratum, or one's uh, religious background. It's uh, accessible for everybody. That's the beauty about it. And whether others choose to believe that I've redeemed myself or not, I worry not because I know and God knows and you can believe that all the youths that I continue to help, they know too. So with that, I'm grateful. So I thank you for the opportunity. And I say to you and everyone else, God bless. So take care. And indeed, you you take care. We so much appreciate you being here with us, and we hope that we are able to speak with you in weeks and months and years to come. And I look forward to that as well. Believe me. And my faith uh, is intransigent. You talk about redemption, and isn't that the goal of all of us in our lives, no matter what? we have lived through is daily redemption to to do better than we did before. Oh, exactly. But the thing is, is that um, as far as redemption is concerned, uh, you never can reach a plateau on acne. It's a continuous process. Each day brings on a new challenge. So for me, it's ongoing. Continuous, and I understand that. So, not only do I live it, but I believe it. So, it's a wonderful thing, and it's kept me strong all this time. So, I have no complaint. Just like the river I've been running 
Thank you to my conversation piece guests, Melvin Farmer and James McCarter. Thank you to Leslie Rafford, the powerful force behind RJLA, Adam Rice, radio man extraordinaire, Michael Washington of M. Wash Soul for the opening theme song, and you, always our RJLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice, Facebook, give us some love, give us some likes, please, as you listen to us worldwide anytime on radiojustice.org. I'm Angela Birdsong. Once again, thank you for allowing me to share this experience of conversation peace on Radio Justice LA morning wake-up call with you. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love. Change all come.